Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm about 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April 2014. And when I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds and I've completely turned my health around. And this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Yes, sir. And hopefully that <laughs> might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nope. <laughs> We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind them, and we hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. And you'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Oh, yeah. We love to cook, mm -hmm. and we love to eat. Sure do. In every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. It cannot. <laughs> Yeah. All right, Richard, let's start podcast number 94, Always Hungry, with Dr. David Ludwig. You for a so, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show with Asim Alhotra? No, that was, uh, Asim was, was pretty good. I don't think we have had anyone complain about anything that he said. <laughs> no, that's, that's very true. Yeah. That's great. All right, well, let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Sure. It's uh, 20 grams or less of carbohydrate per day, uh, moderate protein. So for us, it's between 1 and 1.5 grams per kilogram of lean mass of, uh, of protein. And we get all of our energy from fat. Fat. That's fat on your plate or fat on that uh, Krispy Kreme that you ate a decade ago. Well, Richard, how was your week? Uh, yeah, it was pretty good. I actually hit the lowest weight point that I have been since I was 22. So when Woo! I was 22, I was 102 kilograms. And the other day after, you know, I've been doing this three-day fast sort of every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every week. Yeah, uh, yeah. The other day at the end of my Wednesday three-day fast and at the end of a, a quick 12K bike ride, my, uh, my body weight, now admittedly I was slightly dehydrated, but my body weight was 101.8 kilograms. So Wow. Yeah, lowest ever. Booyah. Well done, sir. Well, thank you. So I don't consider it to be uh, to be my actual weight because obviously I was dehydrated and uh, I had no food in me because, you know, I'd not been eating for three days. Hey, how do you know you weren't dehydrated when you weighed yourself at 22? Could have been, could have been. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that I was, you know, around about 104 uh, kilograms and, you know, that extra weight well. loss was just, you know, transitory. But... I'm looking at my rolling average of weight over the past two or three months, and every month I'm dropping an average of 0.6 of a kilogram. So That's great. I'm getting slowly uh, lighter 
uh, over time as I'm as as I'm as I'm going. I'm just keeping calm and keto-ing on. I think that's great. Uh, so that seems to be working for me. Yeah. The other thing that happened to me this week uh, is I watched a lot of cricket <laughs> because the, it's, <laughs> it, it's the Ashes is on, uh, and yeah. so and uh, I watched a bit of rugby league last night. The World Cup final was on, uh, and Australia beat England in the World Cup final of rugby league, yeah. uh, uh-huh. which uh, I'm very happy about. And then uh, we beat them. In Brisbane, at in the Ashes, and the match currently in South Australia is uh, pretty even. So uh, we've got like five matches to play out over two months, and it's a long, involved sporting event. But uh, it's very popular in both Australia and England. So that's what I've been doing this week. Yeah. So how was your week, Carl? My week was really, really great. I went to Italy on vacation. Wow. If nice. you listen to the Obesity Code podcast, you'll know mm. that we didn't do one last week because yeah, I was true. on vacation. Mm-hmm. The, the story is my daughter, Emmy, who's mm-hmm. been on the show, on the yeah. first Newbies show. Yeah, she was our first she, guest. She was. Mm. She got a job being an au pair for a family right outside of Florence in the Tuscany area. Oh, nice. Nice part of Italy. Pontesieve mm. in a little town called Rufina. And she was at the end of her term. Mm-hmm. And so I went to spend five or six days with her right after Thanksgiving and see Florence and see the town and see a couple more towns. We went to Siena. Nice. Uh, for example. Mm-hmm. And then come home with her. But I want to pay particular attention to the people that I met there, the wonderful people. First of all, she was staying with a family and taking care of a baby. They both work for the Antonori Vineyard, Mm. which is the biggest winemaker in Tuscany. Nice. And they also have brands of wine all over the world. Mm. But I learned, so I learned a lot about wine, but uh, (laughs) what I learned mostly was there's no obese people here. Right. And when I say none, the only obese people I could see were American tourists. Wow. And maybe some elderly gentlemen who have a little belly, but nothing like me, you know, nothing like big obese people. And then, you know, I looked at what they ate and- in the morning, they don't eat a lot, but what they do eat is, you know, coffee or, yep. you know, espresso, mm-hmm. uh, pastry, yeah. and fruit. Yeah. Yeah. In the morning. That's very common in France as well. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not slathering olive oil on it or they don't mm. eat anything. Mm. And then, you know, a, a light lunch of some cold cut, some cheese. It's usually very ketogenic, you know, except sure. for they have fresh bread with everything. Yeah. A lot of olive oil. Mm-hmm. And then dinners are just dinners. I mean, there's salads, there's oil everywhere. Oh, they put olive oil on everything. There's no butter yeah. anywhere. Mm. It's all olive oil. Wow. And they throw olive oil on everything, and everything is well salted and lots of, you know, fatty proteins. And uh, and, and I, it's just astonishing to me that, you know, they maintain this lifestyle, which also is very active, you know. Yeah. they. Walk around a lot. The terrain is hilly and mm-hmm. it's beautiful outdoors. And why wouldn't you want to be outdoors all the time kind of thing? Right. Um, but I, I, it's just astonishing to me that they don't have the the problems that we have. And frankly, I don't think they ever had. Yeah. You know, when I said I was a type 2 diabetic and couldn't eat bread, you know, they, they look at me like I'm strange, like I'm from a different planet. Like I've never seen deranged metabolisms like this before. Right. So it was just very curious to me. And I immediately came home and started a fast. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and it's not because, uh, you know, not because I cheated or anything. I didn't do that, but I just wanted to, uh, after eating all this wonderful food, it's a good time to fast. Yeah. And I decided olive oil is going to be my new thing. Mm -hmm. So, what I'm doing on my fast is, you know, I'm, I'm taking salt. That's fine. But if yeah. I ever feel like I need something more than salt and water, mm -hmm. I'm doing a shot of olive oil with some truffle salt in it. Yeah. Just make sure you have good olive oil. That's the thing. Now, I'm glad you brought that up <laughs> because I remember seeing an article online, and you probably have too, that mm -hmm. some 69% of all olive oil is made with canola or soy or some fake oil, right? So, I actually went to Snopes.com. Mm-hmm. And looked at, you know, what they said about it. And they said that it's half right. Okay. So, what's true is that testing carried out in 2008 and 2010 reported that some popular olive oil brands didn't meet the criteria to be labeled as extra virgin olive oil, even right. though they were. So, they but were heat-processed. Heat yeah. Mm -hmm. But what's false is that tests didn't show that. 69% of the olive oil sold in the U.S. is made wholly or primarily from something other than olives. Interesting. I know that a lot of the Spanish olive oil that we get in Australia is the rancid stuff that they can't sell in their own local market. And That may be true, yeah. Yeah, so, so olive oil in Australia, it's generally advisable to go after local olives. So uh, there, there's right. fairly large olive oil production around the Mildura region and along the Murray River. And so um, I generally try to buy uh, local Australian extra virgin olive oil. And generally, it ta you can taste it. I mean, if you're if you're gonna right. if you're gonna taste just neat olive oil, you're gonna hmm. quickly work out if it's gone rancid or not. So yes, uh, you will. Yeah, that's that's the idea. Yeah. I mean, olive oil shouldn't taste nasty. It should taste no. fruity, fruity of the olives. You know, it should. And I also learned because the family that Emmy stayed with uh, had an olive grove and a vineyard, just a family nice. vineyard. You know, with a few yeah. acres and the yeah. top of the hill kind of thing on a villa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was it was terrible. I know yeah. it was just <laughs> bad. But she learned what makes olive oil bitter and green. And it's the leaves. Mm, the tannins, so when yeah. You, yeah, when, you, when they press the olives, if there are leaves in it, those mm -hmm. leaves give it the bitter taste and the green look. Mm. But um, if it's just pure olives, it'll be mostly yellow. Nice. And uh, yeah, so uh, you, some people like that spicy note, the pepper that you get from the leaves yeah, being sure. crushed in there. Mm -hmm. But I'm with you. I mm -hmm. buy Californian olive oil mm -hmm. and that's what I use. Yeah. And it turns out that it's, yes, made from olives and Good. not canola or soy. <laughs> yeah. So. Outstanding. Yeah, thanks, Snopes. So that <laughs> was my week, Richard. So I think we should uh, find someone from our fan club to give some loot to. Yeah, that's right. We should. And uh, we're giving away Keep Calm and Keto on mugs with our mugs on awesome. them. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. You mm -hmm. could put your coffee or your olive oil or whatever else you want to put in there. <laughs> and how do you get uh, in the competition to win one of those? You go to fanclub.2keto.com and answer a few questions mm -hmm. and you're in. Nice. And so we pick a winner every show at random and today's winner is Max Lewis. Congratulations, Max. Well done. Congratulations. Yes. And Max will be sending that out to you as soon as we get your mailing address and uh, congrats. Yeah. Of course, if you don't want to wait to win a mug, uh, you can't wait for the lottery, then you can always buy one at gear.2keto.com. 
and you can pick yourself up a t-shirt while you're there. Absolutely. All right. Well, that brings us to a little segment we call... <laughs> We're going to stop doing that. We're going to nah, cover the new bit. <laughs> uh, no, okay. I don't think so. So, what have you got, Carl? Well, as many listeners know, we have started more podcasts, and one mm. of them is the Obesity Code podcast with Jason and Megan. Yep. And we did a Thanksgiving special yeah. a couple weeks ago now, mm. and, and this was particularly not just about Thanksgiving, but the holidays in general. And I want to give you the question which came from our ketogenic forums, which you can get to at forum.2keto.com. Mm -hmm. The question is, how to survive Christmas when your family is not supporting your diet? Ah. And I think you could easily substitute holidays mm -hmm. for Christmas if you don't celebrate Christmas. I mean, the end of the year, we all get together and eat, right? With yeah. our family. Another way to ask this is how to survive being around your family when they disagree with your diet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> And uh, so, you know, the question is, is that, but uh, I'll just read it. This person says, hey, guys, I'll be on a trip with my family-in-law during two weeks, Christmas and New Year's Eve celebration, uh, and I don't know how to survive. They are French and pretty food-loving people, lots of wine, too. Hmm. They have been making fun of my weird diet, you know, last year when I was doing intermittent fasting to lower my cholesterol, too mm -hmm. much triglycerides. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean... We think the opposite happens, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, but this year I've started keto and I really like to see progress with my percentage of body fat and cholesterol. But since I can't make them cook keto, I know I'll be eating carb during two weeks in order to be polite and lessen the potential frictions in the family. Do you have experience uh, with similar situations and how hard is it to be on keto uh, afterwards? How hard is it to get back on track? So, you can chime in, Richard, but I will say this. First of all, there is no need to eat carbs when you're with your family as long as there are good sources of fatty protein. Sure. All right? Yeah. But, it, but Megan, and the reason I brought up the Obesity Code podcast is because Megan gave a really, really great tip to everybody, and I think we should all heed it, which yeah. is before dinner, about an hour before dinner, Load up on your keto food, olives, fatty proteins, bacon, cheese, whatever it is that you're going to eat, so that by the time you sit down to eat, you're not tempted by carbohydrates. And you can have a serving of whatever fatty proteins, vegetables uh, are on the table and eat those. And if at the end of that, you're still, you can't, you know, you have to have a piece of bread or whatever. Yeah, okay. Don't beat yourself up about it. But chances are you're going to be able to resist it because you're not hungry when you sit down at the table with all this stuff. Megan Ramos, genius. <laughs> yeah. Now, that was wonderful advice. It really was. So, what do you think, Richard? How would you tell somebody that how to survive a, a meal like that? Okay, so what I'd do is I would say load up on vegetables and slather them with uh, with olive oil or with butter. Um, mm -hmm. I would uh, eat the salad, uh, probably keep the, the dressing on the side unless I knew what was in it. Uh, probably just mm -hmm. ask for all, just straight olive oil uh, as a dressing. Um, and uh, if somebody loads up my plate with potatoes and rice and bread, I'd probably suggest to them that uh, go ahead and load it up. I probably won't be eating much of that, though, because I'm not that hungry. Right. You know, but really, um, 
sometimes your family will try and get you to eat carbs because it's a funny thing to, to do. So yeah, it's weird, yeah, huh? It is. It, it, it's strange. It's a, a little bit self-destructive. But uh, as yeah. Megan said, you know, if you if you're firm with them. Uh, and mm. you explain to them the, the issue, they might be a little bit upset initially, uh, but when they they'll realize that it. you're looking after you and you're looking after your health, uh, they'll probably come around. So, yeah. um, so my, my advice is go listen to the Thanksgiving episode for, for the Obesity Code podcast because uh, Megan's got some great tips. Agree. So you got a mail, Richard? I do. I've got one, and this is from uh, Steve Stevenson. And he says, and this is a post that was in the ketogenic forum, and his post's title is Cancer in a Remission. Oh, and yeah. He says, he says, my oncologist's analysis of my PET bone scan yesterday says I'm in full remission, and he says it's remarkable given that it was high-volume metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, he wow. says all blood tests are normal, a little anemic, which is usual for me since I'm undergoing radiation therapy. Um, and mm. the prostate specific antibodies is 0.1, which means that the, the cancer's, uh, not, uh, diagnosable anymore. Um, and, mm. uh, Steve says, I told him my theory that my very low insulin levels caused by my diet and Megan Ramos's intermittent fasting helped me greatly. Insulin being a growth hormone. He said metformin, a drug used by diabetics to lower insulin, seems to help treat cancer, and there's some confirmation of that theory. In any event, he said to keep doing whatever it is I'm doing and including all the exercise, which he thinks is very positive for cancer. Uh, mm. Plus, he's an amateur triathlete, so he would say that, wouldn't he? <laughs> uh, yeah. Steve also says, by the way, I've been following Amber's lead in eating a ketogenic paleolithic carnivore diet for the last six mm. to nine months i love wow. rare ribeye grass-fed and finished beef smoked wild wow. sockeye salmon and prosciutto i do use coconut milk and oil in my coffee and olive oil on my canned wild sardines mm. so that's nice. uh, that's one heck of a victory lap well done steve and well uh, done steve thank you for for letting us know uh, that is outstanding you know steve came to keto fest Right. 2017. Yeah. And uh, I remember seeing him at the house and just brimming, you know, grinning ear to ear, just a happy man. And I had no idea <laughs> that he had prostate cancer. And I do remember talking to him and, yeah. and uh, you know, he was very appreciative of what we were doing and, uh, and as a big fan. So, Steve, thumbs up to you, man. Yeah, well done, Keep buddy. calm and keto on. Well done. Yeah. So, Richard, this is your interview that you ran into uh, David Ludwig in Sydney, right? Yeah, it, funny story, you know, I was just in America, you and I were in Boston, we were on our way to see Jason Fung in Toronto, and mm. we contacted uh, Dr. Ludwig, because uh, he uh, is a Harvard professor, and he works right. at uh, Boston Children's Hospital, and he's a, pa a pediatric endocrinologist, and uh, and we were going to have a chat to him uh, about, uh, he's written a book about called Always Hungry, but he's also... Uh, uh, doing presentations on the science of low carb. And so right. we wanted to speak to him while we're in Boston and we were traveling through. We went to Framingham and, uh, and we went up mm. to Boston and it turned out that he was actually in Australia because <laughs> he was on <laughs> yeah. sabbatical. So, uh, so we, we contacted his people and said, look, um, I'm going to be back in Australia in a week's time. Let's tee up a time. And, uh, and, and we managed to do that. I went to a lecture of his at uh, Sydney University, uh, thanks to mm -hmm. Jenny Brand Miller who set that up. And uh, then after the lecture, we spoke 
uh, about um, his work. Great. Well, uh, before we play the recording, uh, let me just give you his bio, listener. Yeah, sure. Uh, David S. Ludwig, MD, PhD, is an endocrinologist and researcher at Boston's Children's Hospital, as Richard said. He holds the rank of professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and professor of nutrition at Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Ludwig is founder of the Optimal Weight for Life, or OWL, program at Children's Hospital, one of the country's oldest and largest multidisciplinary clinics for the care of overweight children. His research focuses on the effects of diet on hormones, metabolism, and body weight. In particular, he developed a novel low-glycemic load diet, or in other words, one lowers blood sugar and insulin after meals, for the treatment of obesity and prevention of type 2 diabetes and heart disease. Described as an obesity warrior by Time magazine, Dr. Ludwig has fought for fundamental policy changes to improve the food environment. And there you go. So I'm really interested to hear this conversation. Let's just roll the recording. Okay, so uh, I'm here with uh, Dr. Professor David Ludwig. Would he prefer doctor or professor? David? Either way. <laughs> You've been in Australia now for, what, a couple of weeks? Yes, came out at the uh, beginning of November for a mini sabbatical. Mini sabbatical. It's a nice place to have a sabbatical, a actually, Sydney. Place, especially at this time of year. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't know if you've noticed in Australia, we tend to, to shorten everything like breakfast. The word breakfast becomes brekkie. Uh-huh. Afternoon becomes arvo and names get shortened. So I'm, has anyone called you Davo yet? Uh, not yet. And <laughs> okay. I hope to escape that. <laughs> right. Okay. You've been in Australia now for, for two weeks and you're, uh, here on a sabbatical. You just did a presentation yesterday. Uh, this was actually on World Diabetes Day, wasn't it? That's right. Presentation for the, uh, Charles Perkins Center, mm-hmm. public lecture. And I, I, I was lucky enough to be able to attend that, and it was a recitation of some of the evidence basis behind a low-carb diet. So um, one of the things that you said that I think was probably a little bit controversial uh, is that you said that diabetics, type 2 diabetics, probably should all be on a low-carb diet, which I think might be seen as controversial for the peak bodies responsible for dealing with both diabetics and diet in Australia. Um, I know that the Dietitians Association, their standard, uh, or in fact the Australian Dietary Guidelines, are between 45 and 55% uh, of your calories per day f- or from carbohydrate, which is uh, you can't fit a low-carb diet into that scenario. And Diabetes Australia seed to the Australian Dietary Guidelines, which is set up by the dietitians. So really, I know when I was first diagnosed with diabetes, my HbA1c was 11.2, and I was given a diet that was 300 grams a day of carbohydrate. Um, what do you think about that as a, as a, as a strategy for right. treating a diabetic? Well, 100 years ago before insulin was available for clinical use, the treatment for diabetes was fairly consistently a low-carbohydrate diet. In fact, a very low-carbohydrate diet was life-prolonging in type 1 or juvenile diabetes. Really? This was state-of-the-art. Children could be kept alive, in some cases, for years with an ultra-low, what we now call a ketogenic, low-carbohydrate diet. With the discovery of insulin, um, people could eat more carbohydrate and control the surge of blood sugar by adjusting the insulin dose. Right. 
over the years, as a consequence, the recommendations for carbohydrate greatly liberalized mm. until the 1980s and 1990s when fat was considered universally unhealthy right. as a nutrient. Um, led to recommendations for all people, including diabetes, of a very high carbohydrate diet, up to 60% of calories as carbohydrate or more. In fact, the classic uh, American Diabetes Association recommendations during that time was 60-20-20, 60% carbohydrate, 20% wow. protein, 20% fat. Now, since then, um, recommendations have continued to change to varying degrees among professional organizations around the world mm -hmm. so that the American Diabetes Association now doesn't have one specific nutrient target okay. and encourages individualization. But as a starting point, mm -hmm. uh, on their website to this day, suggest aiming for 45 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per meal. Wow. Uh, as a starting point. Yeah. So, yes, we can, to a considerable degree, control the surge of blood sugar that mm -hmm. occurs with a high-carbohydrate meal using insulin. But high doses of insulin itself has downsides. Sure. You know, one is hypoglycemia yeah. in the late postprandial period. So, if we keep blood sugar from surging too high immediately after a meal, mm. which we know can produce damaging effects on blood vessels and, and metabolism. We set ourselves up for hypoglycemia, right. the opposite problem, three or four hours later. Yeah. In addition, continuously high doses of insulin may itself be an important cardiovascular risk factor. Right. You know, hyperinsulinemia can promote insulin resistance, just mm -hmm. as insulin resistance can promote hyperinsulinemia in someone without diabetes. Yeah. High doses of insulin um, have metabolic effects throughout the body, mm. the constellation of which can be described as the metabolic syndrome, the right. insulin resistance syndrome yeah. of high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, chronic inflammation, high blood pressure. Central adiposity. Central adiposity, coagulation. Yeah. Defects. Coagulation defects. Yep. That's, that's very interesting. Part of the metabolic syndrome. That's interesting. And the reason I say that, I recently got a DNA test. Uh, I'm type 2 di diabetic, as you know, and uh, recovering type 2 diabetic. Um, and uh, I have Leiden factor 5, which is a coagulation um, defect, uh, which uh, causes, me, causes me a chance of uh, uh, venous um, uh, clots. Yeah. Some coagulation problems can be genetic, so okay. inborn. And, Which know, would be my case, yeah. Um, but the coagulopathy that uh, is associated with the metabolic syndrome involves an increased tendency to form blood clots. Okay. So hypercoagulability. Right. You know, fibrinogen goes up. Yeah. Uh, PI1 mm -hmm. also changes. Uh, it's These relate to how quickly the body will form a clot hmm. and how quickly clots in the wrong places can get appropriately dealt with by fibrinolysis, so right. the process of breaking down clots. Clotting is one of the final events in a heart attack or a stroke. Oh, right, yes. So, you know, clotting in the blood vessel mm -hmm. is a bad thing. Yeah. So the tendency to develop 
atheromas, so mm-hmm. fatty deposits that then become inflamed, mm. chronic inflammation, and coagulopathy, you know, is a recipe for sure. cardiovascular wow. disease. Okay. So, yes, we can with modern insulin analogs, mm-hmm. which drug companies have spent billions of dollars developing, uh, do a better job of controlling blood sugar uh, on a high-carbohydrate diet compared to where we were 50 or certainly 100 years ago. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that a high-carbohydrate diet is necessarily, you know, desirable. Mm-hmm. And conceptually speaking, you know, reducing carbohydrate in the diet makes the challenge of controlling blood sugar both that sur- initial surge at one hour sure. and the potential crash at three or four hours makes both of those easier because yeah. you're not hitting such a quickly moving target. Right. Now, the ultimate yeah. um, extreme is a very low or a carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet mm. with so little carbohydrate that one experiences essentially no changes in blood sugar after a meal. Right. And so that makes conceptually makes management of diabetes much easier because sure. then you just need you know, basal doses mm. for most of one's requirements yeah. and then very small amounts with meals for pro- predominantly focused on the protein content. Right. So protein yeah. does require some. Um, but protein is digested more slowly mm-hmm. um, and has a much gentler impact on blood sugar. Right. So... Uh, These very low-carbohydrate diets are now um, being used by tens or hundreds of thousands of people Mm. in the United States with type 2 diabetes, but increasingly type 1 diabetes as well. We really need good studies. Uh, My research group uh, has um, done and is doing studies of very low-carbohydrate diets in small controlled settings, but we also need funding, uh, you know, the, the research, uh, the world of nutrition research needs much more significant funding to conduct right. the definitive clinical trials. Yeah. You know, if a drug company has a promising new drug, mm-hmm. they snap their fingers and can raise hundreds of millions of dollars to do a phase three clinical trial. And that's a drug to treat perhaps just one complication mm. of uh, our poor diet or of diabetes, you know, such as hypertension or high cholesterol or clotting defects. Sure. Um, why must nutrition research beg for, you know, just a paltry sums? We need to conduct high quality clinical trials that cost tens or even a hundred million dollars yeah. to get definitive answers. This would be a no brainer in pharmacological research, but yet, you know, because nobody benefits to the same degree, yeah. you know, nutrition research is a poor stepchild. Um, and in fact, there, you know, you could argue there's a vested interest in not having uh, more effective nutritional approaches to diabetes or, or heart disease because it would put a lot of drug companies out of business. Yeah. You know, for a hundred million dollars, we could come up with a definitive answer to the question, does a very low carbohydrate diet, um, is it definitively advantageous for type one and for type two diabetes compared to a standard 
high carbohydrate diet? Right. Or could you accomplish much of the benefit with a moderate carbohydrate diet? Maybe just bringing total carbohydrate down to mm. 25%. So sure. that's enough so that people can still have a really widely variable and diverse diet with whole fruits, vegetables, some beans, even maybe small amounts of whole kernel grain products. Sure. Um, maybe one doesn't need to go to that extreme of mm. a ketogenic diet. We don't know. Yeah. We, we don't have the trials. But we can come up with answers. And likely, there's going to be some individual variation. There'll be some people who require more extreme approaches. Others who can get by with um, a little more flexibility. Yeah. How do we predict those people? Yeah. Well, we can. Right. If we had the right research, and it's time that it be done. So I understand that you're working with uh, Dr. Richard Bernstein on some type one diabetics in a in a study to to um, to see how their um, glucose is maintained on a almost ketogenic diet. Right. We have a uh, preliminary data on a community of individuals, both children and adults. Okay. Interestingly, nice. about half of them are children, wow. um, consuming a very low carbohydrate diet. It's not specifically ketogenic. In fact, yeah, many uh, people in this community are consuming uh, relatively high amounts of protein, which would right. tend to have a suppressive effect on, sure. on ketones. But in any event, total carbohydrate intake is very low. Yeah. So, this is an approach which was specifically discouraged wow. um, in recent years by yeah. the major diabetes associations. Again, even though 100 years ago, this kind of a diet would have been life-preserving right. for people with type 1 diabetes. So that's crying out for research then to, to test that assumption. So we have some preliminary data. In fact, yeah. we've uh, submitted it for publication. Um, it's not a clinical trial. This is an observational study, but an observational study is the place to start. That's right. So if you want to document a phenomenon yep. that's thought not to be possible, mm -hmm. then an observational study is the right first approach. And then hopefully, uh, once those data are published, we can use them to argue uh, for the need for a high-quality randomized control trial. Right. But that's a big, you know, to do a randomized control trial in type 1 diabetes with adequate power mm. is a big deal. You know, we want to do it right. We know that, you know, unlike uh, uh, the general public, having diabetes, and especially type 1 diabetes, carries important risks. Someone shifting from a, a standard diet to a low-carbohydrate diet without appropriately adjusting insulin dose and other management aspects could be at risk for severe hypoglycemia. Um, you know, uh, so we, we have to get it, we have to do it right. And not all low-carbohydrate diets are alike. How low do we need to go with carbohydrate? Right. Uh, how much protein? How do we distribute the calories through the day? How do you uh, adjust insulin right. based on what you're eating and what your blood sugars are? You know, these aren't, you know, this is not um, rocket science, but it requires some careful uh, you know, careful attention to study design right. so that the results are rigorous. Yes. And the general nutrition and diabetes professional communities will recognize these data when they come um, as solid mm. and informing of uh, dietary guidelines. Right. So we've actually had a conversation with uh, Tim Noakes recently about 
a similar subject and it's really, you know, is the science going to be enough to, to change policy? And he has a view that he hopes it is. But and he wishes it is, but um, uh, but he's a little bit he, he is pessimistic. And Gary Taubes was the same. Gary Taubes said you can probably you know it's going to be very difficult and very expensive to do this the kind of study that will be incontrovertible. Well, it's difficult and time consuming, but it's just a question of time. I'm optimistic that ultimately the truth will prevail. It won't necessarily prevail according to our time frame. Right. But the answers will come. The question is, can we, you know, get the answers we need now to affect people's lives now? Or is there going to be a delay of five or 10 or 15 years? You know, I've been doing nutrition research for 20 years. I've seen evolution. Change does happen. Okay. I don't feel that anybody in the professional diabetes associations or, um, intentionally trying to close down the process of science. They just have their view, and they're arguing that the data for some of these alternative approaches are not yet there. Right. And, and to a considerable degree, yeah. they're right. Yeah. You, know, um, you know, we all can latch on to um, small studies that tend to support our ways of thinking. Sure. And I think, um, in my view, an objective analysis presently gives an advantage, a strong advantage to low-carbohydrate diets specifically for diabetes, but we don't have definitive data. Once we do, you know, the um, paradigm will shift. And in fact, you know, you'll go around and you'll find people who used to advocate, you know, high-carbohydrate yeah. diets yeah. who will enthusiastically embrace low-carbohydrate diets and wonder with you why anybody ever <laughs> thought differently. You know, that's the yeah. nature of change. We were always against sugar. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think, um, so, but you know, all it takes is, you know, one billionaire to um, be willing to put in, you know, 50 or $100 million into yeah. a clinical, definitive clinical trial. Um, that is a way that a person can mm -hmm. have massive impact and we're waiting at harvard for yeah. those uh <laughs> the right, those dollars the right to billion. flow we'll 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 get you the research yeah well the, it potentially this could impact half of the world's population because half of the world's population could well be uh capable of being type 2 diabetic well we yeah, as of uh yesterday was world diabetes day and yep. uh new numbers came out and there are presently uh, an estimated 500 million people worldwide with right. diabetes. That's going to go up to, uh, I think, 750 or 800 million by by the next decade. Is that diagnosed diabetic? Uh, well, you know, unfortunately, in many countries around the world, without you know, state-of-the-art healthcare, and to some degree in the United States or Australia, hmm. cases of diabetes are unrecognized. Right. You know, um, but even though, you know, this is not a case of what you don't know won't hurt you. Right, exactly. You know, the consequences of uh, running chronically high blood sugars and the other metabolic dysfunction that occurs with diabetes, you know, takes a big toll. And uh, we're also seeing type 2 diabetes striking at younger and younger ages. You know, it's one thing for a 50-year-old who'd been gaining excessive weight to develop type 2 diabetes, um, you know, get the first heart attack at age 60 and maybe die at age 70. Right. It's a very different thing if the clock starts ticking at age 10. Absolutely. And there are kids that young with uh, type 2 diabetes, yes. right? Yes. 
you know, I, um, in my clinical practice, I've uh, seen dozens of uh, children in early adolescence with frank type 2 diabetes, and that's uh, a malignant condition. Yeah. You know, that uh, a diagnosis of diabetes at age 10 or 12, mm. in terms of life expectancy, is probably worse, is as bad as, or might be worse than a diagnosis of standard risk leukemia. Right. Wow. I I was type 2 diabetic at 38, so I was very young when it happened to me. And I, I only, I, I come from a medical family. My, my father's an anesthetist and his father was a old school physician. And when I, I said to him, I, I was living in Las Vegas at the time, I called and I said, yeah, I'm type 2 diabetic. He said, oh, yeah, that runs in the family. And I said, why didn't you tell me this? Why didn't yeah. I know that? We don't talk about these kinds of things. And and what I didn't know and I only learned recently was my grandfather, I only knew that he died of a heart attack. He died at 70 of a heart attack. But I didn't know for the last 10 years of his life he was diabetic and that, that yeah. wasn't even mentioned. And so you know, There's all other kinds of diabetes that run in families, something okay. called MODI. Okay. which is a, tends to be a dominant inheritance, and it's mm -hmm. uh, different kinds. They have a little different clinical implications than type 2. Right. So that's called maturity-onset diabetes of the young. Mm -hmm. So for somebody who developed it at your age with three generations having mm -hmm. diabetes, you know, one could then you know, think about this, and there are Interesting. straightforward genetic tests so what, to assess. I, 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 I have had a DNA test uh, with 23andMe, and then... Taking the data and giving it to Prometheus. Yeah, no, I think you want to do this a little differently. Go, you know, to a, a any diabetologist could okay. run the genes for Modi. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm. So my father is not diabetic. Doesn't have. It uh, doesn't have. Oh, pass so, so it skipped one skipped generation. A, he he passed an OGTT, but he is um, he is uh, st uh, starting to. Uh, be affected by Alzheimer's, and he's the only one in the family who's, oh, okay. who's been affected. And well, some people call Alzheimer's. Um, Type three diabetes, right. diabetes of the brain, involved <laughs> seriously. Yeah, and insulin resistance in the brain seems to be a critical mechanistic step in the development of Alzheimer's. Right, which provides a theoretical basis for interest in ketogenic diets to sure. manage or prevent Alzheimer's because you can circumvent the insulin resistance um, with ketones mm. to a considerable degree. Right. So, so if the if the brain is having trouble fueling itself adequately by glucose, right. ketones provide an alternate substrate. Yeah. There was a woman whose husband had uh, Alzheimer's who um, treated him with coconut oil. Uh, she was a pediatrician, and she uh, treated him with coconut oil. And it it became popular on, on YouTube, obviously, because anyone who has somebody a member of the family with Alzheimer's is going to yeah you know, be attracted to that kind of story. Um, but uh, that. That that was fascinating, and, and somebody who eats um, coconut oil is going to produce ketones um, to varying degrees. If you're eating coconut oil, which are contain medium chain triglycerides uh, and a lot of carbohydrate, um, you'll suppress the ketogenic drive. Right. So it's really a combination of reduced total carbohydrate and especially the high glycemic index carbohydrates. With medium chain triglycerides, which then give you I a see. strong ketogenic drive. Right. So, so for somebody, say for a geriatric who it was difficult to put them onto a ketogenic diet because of compliance and, um, they just want to eat what they're used to eating all their lives. 
um, and maybe they're in an assisted care where where the dietitian or nutritionist responsible for feeding them refuses to to, to do that kind of thing. Is that probably a scenario where exogenous ketones might be appropriate, or is that well? The, the question of exogenous ketones, so ketones not generated by the body but mm. taken yes. as a drug, is a whole nother kettle of fish. Yes. Uh, excuse the metaphor. <laughs> you know, one issue is the actual safety of the preparation. So we we don't have a lot of data yet, uh, manufacturing techniques, contamination, and the like. A second issue is the pharmacodynamics. You know, right. you're taking it; it's entering through the gut, mm-hmm. being absorbed in different, bio- which is a biologically different route than making ketones right. itself for the liver. But a third issue is just dumping in a fuel into a body. That's may may already have an ex- an excess of another fuel, glucose. Right. Sure. So um, we typically make ketones when uh, we we primarily make ketones when glucose as a fuel runs low. So right. that's our alternative fuel. That's the context in which we make. That's how ketones would be made in the body right. in a state of low insulin mm-hmm. and low glucose. Right. You take somebody on a standard high-carbohydrate diet with high levels of glucose circulating and then dump in high levels of this alternative fuel, Hmm. now you've created a state which would never exist in nature. Right. And we just don't know what the, you know, you might feel good temporarily, but we don't know what the long-term consequences of that. You were jumping over a regulated biological step, and I, I, I always feel hesitant when we take that step, uh, whether it's with a drug or with, um, you know, uh, other approaches like this that might, you know, technically be diet, but, yeah. you know, we're, we're messing with biological pathways that, right. uh, you know, for, for which we just do not know the long-term consequences. One of the concerns I've heard uh, mentioned, and in fact I've mentioned <laughs> multiple times, is the the, uh, the issue of uh, the fact that ketones that we manufacture in labs, for the most part, are racemic. And so we we, we have, there's a stereoisomer, uh, two stereoisomers, uh, if you want a left-handed and right-handed version. We're used to dealing, we've got three billion years experience dealing with the right-handed version, and we've got three years experience dealing with the left-handed version and possibly um, uh, we've only tested it in mice in small amounts that we've tagged to see what happens and uh, some of it, it appears the carb some of the carbon appears exhaled out um, so there's some it's being used for energy yeah. somehow yeah. but uh, we don't know how we don't know what transports it's using we don't know what enzymes are required we don't we know that the enzymes necessary to use the right-handed version uh chiral and so they can only use the right-handed and so there's this potential of dumping in half of the exogenous ketones could be stuff that we don't know what's happening and you know what happens to a caloric amount of that over a long human lifetime you know give this to 30 year old fit people who just want to feel slightly smarter for the for the moment, and what what's you know yeah, thirty forty just years take, of that going to do? Take a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, right, we, we have uh, longer term observational data. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate what you said about the pharmacodynamics of it. That's that's something I hadn't considered. So, so in the presentation last night, you you spoke a lot about high and low glycemic 
carbohydrates. And it seemed like you were comparing carbohydrates that would turn very quickly into glucose and be in the blood supply very quickly versus carbohydrates that would be very slow. And contrasting that rather than contrasting high carb and low carb, you're contrasting fast carb and slow carb. Uh, is that a, a, a new tactic for low carb diets to have slow carbs? Well, really, carbohydrate, we can think of carbohydrate uh, in the diet as progressing along a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Why do we want to decrease carbohydrate? Uh, well, to an extreme level, we can uh, transition the body into a ketogenic state. But that requires really very meticulous carbohydrate restriction, as well as limitations on protein intake. Um, you know, there's evidence of benefit reducing carbohydrate before reaching that extreme state, and many people on low-carbohydrate diets do not consistently run so-called therapeutic levels of uh, ketones. So why would there be a benefit of reducing carbohydrate? Well, it could be that you blunt the surge of blood sugar after the meal, so you don't get the same burst of reactive oxygen species and chronic inflammation that sure. occurs at that one-hour point when your blood sugar is so high. The other possible advantage is lowering insulin levels. Mm -hmm. you know, too much of the hormone insulin uh, can promote insulin resistance, can sure. uh, uh, fuel the metabolic syndrome, and Shifting simply from high to low glycemic index carbohydrates can accomplish those benefits to a considerable degree without having to eliminate many of the carbohydrates that uh, people like to eat. Right. So um, it's really a question of degree uh, of biological effect based on a person's uh, baseline health status, their, mm -hmm. their biological needs, the variation that occurs between people, and their health goals. Now, clearly, billions of people around the world have lived relatively healthful lives, eating quite a bit of carbohydrate. Sure. You know? um, so, why do we need to tell everybody to give up this, you know, very tasty nutrient? In fact, we don't have enough, you know, animals to provide all of the you know, the protein and fat um, that would be needed for approaching 10 billion people, right. you know, to, to sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but we need, but from a public health perspective, we can do a lot about the quality of the carbohydrate. Mm. And so simply shifting from the more processed to the minimally processed grains, when you think of uh, global health, mm -hmm. would have a massive effect. Right. Um, you know, we're talking about the difference between highly processed white flour that's quickly baked into, you know, bread with a, like a 20 minute fermentation using industrial methods mm -hmm. versus, um, more traditional like stone ground breads that are then slowly fermented. Right, so a lot of the sourdough, like the classic sourdoughs, um, these heavy, dark, like German or mm. Norwegian rye breads yeah. that have, you can actually see the kernel mm -hmm. present. It's yeah. got big 
particle size. And with the long fermentation, a lot of the available rapidly digestible carbohydrate, including some, a lot of the gluten can yes. be um, digested. Stripped out, yeah. And then, mm. so what's left behind is much more resistant starch mm. that has benefits in the colon. And um, fermentation product acids, like lactic acid, right, yeah. that itself has benefits, mm. slows down digestion. So um, those kinds of more traditional grains, um, or if you don't want grains at all, there's no human requirement to consume grains, you know, whole fruits, non-starchy vegetables, um, beans, again, depending upon your own particular philosophy about that, sure, you know, yeah. beans are not big in the paleo group, but um, they're a great source of protein for people who want to, you know, have a more, you know, less animal-based approach to their diet. Sure. And, you know, the latest research on aging mm. suggests, uh, fairly strongly suggests advantages, long-term advantages for more plant protein sure. in slowing down the aging. The animal proteins seem to give you, you know, the biggest immediate uh, metabolic bang, you know, a little more musc musculature. Yeah potentially higher fertility. Yes. But some of these lower protein and more plant-based diets you know, don't overactivate certain anabolic pathways, mm -hmm. mTOR, mTOR, for example, yeah. mm -hmm. and, you know, may look really good to slow down aging. So um, we need flexibility of approach, you know. There's no one approach to diet that's going to work for the entire world's populations. But I think, you know, considering glycemic index as a first step for the global population. Because right. it doesn't require giving up any class of foods. It just means that we'll process the foods differently and maybe shift agricultural policy, you know, to favor some of the lower glycemic index, more traditional, you know, sources of carbohydrate. And then for people who have a preference or a biological need, such as diabetes, mm -hmm. then more significant restriction of carbohydrate up to and including a ketogenic diet. Sure. So you, you said something interesting last night that uh, you said there's no human requirement for carbohydrate. There's human requirement for protein and fat, but not for carbohydrate. But you said that it's almost impossible to be zero carbohydrate. Yeah. Even if you're just eating animal products, you know, um, muscle and, or liver organ meat contains some glycogen that's the form of carbohydrate that's stored in, um, in animal bodies right not a lot of it although you know depending i think some of the sea uh, animals mm. that maybe the inuits would have eaten could sure. have brought their carbohydrate intake up to maybe 10 percent wow. um you know but you know, depending upon exactly how much you know muscle meat or organ meat but clearly people can um, survive quite well mm. uh, without any specific minimum amount of of carbohydrate. Um, it's very difficult for I think anybody to get below about twenty grams a day. Yeah, I mean you really you know then you're talking about virtually eating no vegetables at all. It is um, very difficult. I've which done it. <laughs> which tough. people have done? I mean, you know, the Inuits for most of the year would have maybe a little bit of sea vegetable that washed up on the shore, but you know, for most of the year would have been eating you know very little. But that's you know really restrictive, and you know there there is um, much I think nutrition to be had in plant foods that provide antioxidants and 
anti-inflammatory chemicals. Although, again, there's debate about which plant foods and could there be downsides to some plant foods. Um, After all, plants don't necessarily want us to eat them any more than animals want us to eat them. And um, certain parts of the plant, not the fruit, but other parts of the plant are infused oftentimes with chemicals designed to convince us not to eat them. So almonds, as they originally Mm -hmm. were present in nature, were laced with cyanide. Um, You know, they still contain very small amounts that don't, you know, uh, present a biological problem for us. But uh, some paleo folks don't eat beans because of concern for lectins. You know, we need to be mindful. But uh, again, I think that uh, not ruling out any one class of foods for the entire world's population, to me, makes more sense. Yes. We, we aim for minimum deprivation for maximum benefits, which admittedly will vary from person to person. Yeah, that's almost an economist statement. <laughs> but Another thing you mentioned um, last night was uh, this this um, fast response and then the roller coaster ride down in reactive hypoglycemia and uh, uh, and then you you said just to, uh, you said earlier today that um, that uh, some of the ketogenic diets don't have this fast response and possibly that it may be something that's needed could there be a downside yep. to the fact that we don't have the glucose spike and that we don't have the we don't we, we don't go through yeah. the range is is yeah no I, I think it, so one question is could there be a downside to the ketogenic diet? that's a very good question uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't see any problem from avoiding swings in blood sugar. I don't see any benefit. In fact, the body likes to have a steady Mm -hmm. access to metabolic fuels. The brain requires fuels uh, 24-7, 365. And a brief interruption of fuels to the brain would be catastrophic. Right. Um, And in fact, we have lots of regulatory systems that tend to, that whose whose aim is to blunt the surge of of glucose after a meal and prevent the crash that occur, would occur later. The problem is our modern, highly processed, high-carbohydrate diet uh, push those regulatory systems beyond the breaking point, especially for some people who are insulin over-secretors. Um, but there may be other downsides to ketogenic diet for some people. Okay. Well, one is it's highly restrictive. Yeah. So we, you know, we live in a, a world mm-hmm. surrounded by all sorts of tasty carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it requires, uh, meticulous commitment and a, a brief foray from a strict ketogenic regimen can set you back quite a bit. Yeah. You know, it shuts off ketones can be shut off with one high carbohydrate meal mm-hmm. um as you well know yes i do <laughs> and um you know requires close monitoring um you know to get it right um and there's also the risks of some nutritional deficiencies mm-hmm. uh we don't yet know what the risks of kidney stones are right. but there's some theoretical concerns mm-hmm. that uh you know with increased uric acid production and um, kidney stone formation. And then uh, that brings us to the question of LDL cholesterol because right. ketogenic diets uh, are almost unavoidably very high in saturated fat, mm-hmm. although um, one can play with that to a considerable degree. Sure. You know? um, but saturated fat tends to be 
more ketogenic than unsaturated fats. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they tend to, they tend to go along well. And yeah. for some people, not for everybody, but some people, most people will experience some increase in their LDL, mm-hmm. which is uh, compensated for by uh, an increase in commensurate increase in HDL and a decrease in their triglycerides. Right. But others experience an explosion of LDL, and yeah. that's not just these large fluffy particles. I happen to be one of them. Oh, no. really? So I've been on a ketogenic yeah. diet. I, 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 it's restrictive, but I love the mental clarity that I mm-hmm. experience on it. Um, but my LDL, you know, my total cholesterol goes from a, you know, a really healthful 160 or 180 um, to 280. Right. Most of that is LDL. Yeah. And um, I went from what uh, NMR analysis suggested was a very low risk yeah. cardio profile yeah. to a high risk cardio profile. Right. Now, um, we don't know ultimately what the significance of high LDL and small particles for the subset of people who are like me uh, might be to the heart in the context of low chronic inflammation because my CRP is very low and that's oftentimes the case on these diets. But um, I disagree with some in the low-carb community to disregard LDL cholesterol. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's strong genetic evidence, including Mendelian randomization studies, that LDL is an independent predictor, uh, an important independent predictor of cardiovascular disease risk. Mm. Uh, It's not the only one, um, and I think the mistake made by conventional medicine has been to exclusively focus on LDL, Mm -hmm. and in some cases, causing um, other problems along the way, such as by decreasing saturated fat to very low levels and ignoring processed carbohydrate. So you lower LDL, but your triglycerides Late explode. Triglycerides, yeah, yeah. Um, but so we don't want to make that mistake, but um, there's a risk that the pendulum will fall, will, will swing too far in the other direction of entirely ignoring LDL for a subset of people who may actually be at significant risk. Right. So did your triglycerides jump up? When you went on a ketogenic diet? No. My triglycerides have always been quite good. You know, I typically run a, a, an HG, a triglyceride to HDL ratio of near one. Nice. Which is, you know, which is... Um, Under two is... Very, which is ideal. You know, yeah. basically ideal. Yeah. Um, and that didn't change very much. My triglycerides might have gone down just very slightly, but they've always been pretty low. The big change was the LDL. Yeah. I was going to say that had your triglycerides gone up, you would have been the seventh person I've I've met in maybe 30,000 people I've spoken to who've, who've done a low-carb diet whose triglycerides went up. We've had people whose triglycerides went up from, uh, you know, from 150 to 1,000 on going on a ketogenic diet. And, and, yeah. uh, and uh, in all cases... I send them to their GP and say, yeah. you need to probably re- reconsider whether you're doing this because we really don't know. Well, I think what this, what. what this emphasizes is that one size doesn't fit all. Yeah, you know, true. there's this tendency in the world of nutrition hmm. to become religious. Yes. You know, this has worked for me. I've found nutritional grail. Yes. And so it must work for everybody. Right. I mean, that's what re- religions do, you yeah, know? It is. It's unfortunate. It's contributing to the diet wars in right. both directions. Yes. You know, you have on the one hand vegans yes. and the other hand paleos or very low carbers 
And both groups think the other is you know, pig-headed, uh, refuses to embrace obvious data, and <laughs> they question each other's motivations. Right. Um, but they both may be right to a considerable degree for themselves. Yeah. You know, among you know, if you, the thousand people who might have tried a vegan diet, maybe a hundred do really well with it. Right. And that hundred, you know, has benefited. The problem is thinking that everybody will benefit yeah. from it. And the same is true on the other side with the low-carb community. Right. Now, I think, as I've, as I've mentioned, I think that uh, for type 2 diabetes, you know, the evidence is quite strong favoring a low-carb diet, although that could be plant-based. I mean, there's, yeah. there's no reason, and I, I, there's a whole um, growing vital uh, internet community of vegan ketos. Right. Uh, I'd love to speak to some of them. Yeah. Because, and if any, uh, if any are listening, yeah. uh, get in touch. With well, them. I can introduce yeah. you to them. I'd love to. And some of them are my best friends. Okay. Good. Uh, and I conceptually it's appealing, but, but again, coming back to the main yeah. point, which is that, um, one size doesn't fit all. Right. We all need to be, uh, showing a little more humility that even though we may have found an approach that, uh, works for us, uh, it won't necessarily work. For someone else, and that um, we have to consider uh, ways that we could have each of us have limited perspectives and would benefit by listening to our opponents. Right. You know that's true in politics in the United States um, and elsewhere. It's true in the nutritional debates. Yeah. We need to um, depolarize a bit and recognize that there is tremendous inter-individual variation. Some of that is biologically determined. Right. There are, it brings to mind the Kempner rice diet, which... The which? The Kempner diet from Duke in the 40s. The, the, right, the, the rice, rice diet, diet yeah. which was a yeah. rice and white sugar yeah. and fruit, and it was like all of the things that you yeah. might think might derange a diabetic. Yeah. But Denise Minger did a presentation in Iceland about it, uh, and she said, I'm probably going to be stoned by this crowd because it was a low-carb crowd. She said, but... And then she, she yeah. explained this. And it makes a funny kind of sense that, that, you know, if you can, if you really dial back on fats, um, you can, there's like a, a back channel to the pancreas that will. Well, I think what happens is on a, on a conventional low fat diet is that, um, you're still eating enough fat so that the insulin, that's the high insulin produced by the carbohydrates, sends the message to store all the fats you're right. eating. And yeah. at 20% fat, yeah. there's still a lot, there's still a lot of fat to store. You know, if you get down below 10%, yeah. which is doable, yeah. it's very difficult, yeah. but it's doable. Um, you're still making a lot of insulin hmm. and we don't know the long-term effects of that, but that insulin doesn't have a lot of fat to work on. And the process of de novo lipogenesis, so making fat from carbohydrate, which can occur. There's no doubt that that occur, but it's a sluggish pathway. Okay. And so, you know, in that situation, especially for some people, you know, um, they can succeed. Mm, right. Um, I, I have long-term concerns with that, but, but there are enough anecdotal reports, you know, to suggest that, uh, you know, some, including reversing diabetes. Yeah. It's not an experiment that I personally want to take on because I, yeah. I don't like the taste of white rice and, and fruit and yeah. sugar, but no, that's uh, just at a personal level.
I'd like to t- thank David Ludwig for uh, for sitting down with us on this uh, lovely day in Sydney. Um, and My pleasure. I hope that Australia looks after you. Thank you. <laughs> well done, Richard. Yeah, thank you, Carl. Uh, I'm not a professional when it comes to interviewing. That's uh, that's something that uh, that I generally leave to you. But since I was in country at the time, and Dr. Ludwig was a pro, he was able to. Um, Give me interesting answers, even if I asked you yeah. questions. So, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm glad you brought up the slow carb thing. No yeah. carbs is better than slow for a deranged metabolism like me. But but it's interesting that he has a, 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 a you know, his, his scope is a little bit wider than ours, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it was interesting, the comments that you made earlier about Italy. Uh, and these are people who aren't deranged, and they can probably tolerate slower carbs. Um, right. You know, they're they're not eating processed food with a lot of sugar and 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 processed flours and the like that we would eat. They, they don't eat pop tarts in Italy, so you know yeah, this right. is probably why uh, for them you know that kind of uh, uh, diet is entirely reasonable. They could probably thrive for the rest of their lives on it. For you and yeah. I, we're just so totally deranged that uh, we really need something like keto to 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 be safe. But I got to tell you, there's no shortage of salty, fatty meats in Italy. And when they eat meat, it's full fat. Like, yeah. they, they don't shy away from it no. like we do. I so, don't. they've never <laughs> had a low-fat diet. I don't anymore. I, I do yeah, not shy right. away from the fat. I had pork belly tonight <laughs> for dinner. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we're all for more science being done. So, we hope Dr. Ludwig gets the support he needs. Mm. Well, are you hungry? Yeah, I kind of am. <laughs> I think it's time all for right, some then. recipes. Recipes. Recipes! Recipes. Recipes. What you got, Cal? Well, if you remember, last week I gave you the butter rum pie crust. Mm. Yeah, so I'm going to complete the cycle this week with pumpkin pie mm, using nice. the butter rum crust. Mm. You know, um, some pumpkin pie, most classic pumpkin pie recipes call for condensed milk or evaporated milk. Which yeah. is, you know, it's, if you think about it, it, it's sweet and nasty, but it yeah. it has the consistency of cream. It's actually even a little thicker than cream. Yeah. So, mine, of course, doesn't use that. Of course. Mine is one 15-ounce can of pure pumpkin pu- puree. Mm-hmm. You could use, actually cook your own pumpkin and steam it and puree it up. You don't have to, don't have to get it out of a can. You certainly could in the, in the true people. And by the way, Emmy... Made mm. Thanksgiving dinner for her family in Italy. Nice. And made a pumpkin pie. Nice. And there's no pumpkin in a can. So they yeah. have pumpkins. She <laughs> yeah. just she did that, it all from scratch. That's how I do all it right. too. Yeah, I don't don't <laughs> eat pumpkin out of a can. But uh, let's go with your recipe. Let's go. All right, we'll go with that. So <laughs> yeah. as long as you have fifteen ounces of pure pumpkin puree, mm. you need a half a cup of heavy cream, two mm. large eggs. Two-thirds of a cup of Sirkin Gold brown sugar substitute. Okay. And you can use whatever whatever you like there, but mm-hmm. that's what I used. Um, two teaspoons of pumpkin pie spice and, you know, pumpkin spice, that's all the rage. It's easy to find. So, tell me about what pumpkin spice, what's in it? Yeah, well, you got cloves, you got allspice, you got ginger, you got cinnamon, right. nutmeg, that kind of stuff. It's that- Yeah, yeah. Yeah, goes well with molasses kind of thing. <laughs> It might not even have ginger in it, but I I love ginger. No, I think it does ginger I mean, powder. Yeah, Marianne was cute too, but I love ginger. <laughs> anyway, Bubble. so you also <laughs> you also need a half a teaspoon of kosher salt mm-hmm. and a teaspoon of vanilla extract. So 
It's a very simple recipe. You make the butter rum pie crust from last week. Sure. You turn down the oven to 325 or, you know, turn it up if it's off. Mm -hmm. But you want to set the oven to 325. If the crust has just come out of the oven, you let it cool for at least 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Now, you basically just combine all these ingredients with a whisk and pour it into the cooled pie shell Mm -hmm. and bake for 45 to 50 minutes or until it's almost set. You'll know when it's done. You'll see it. You'll jiggle it. It'll have a little wiggle to it, but not a lot of slop. Mm -hmm. And then it's done. And if you really want to, you can stick a straw in, you know, or a piece of toothpick or something in the middle and see if it sticks. Yeah, yeah. But that's it. Nice. And I served it at Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. How was it? It was great. I haven't had pumpkin pie since I started yeah. uh, keto. So yeah. at least I don't think I have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there you go. So what yeah. do you got, Richard? So I'm also going to do a pie recipe. And uh, this is going to be one that we had in Breckenridge, which was uh, Brenda Zorn's pecan oh. pie or pecan oh maple God. pie. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm not going to give a pie crust recipe. And, and Brenda actually got her recipe from Kim Dennis. And Kim put a post on our ketogenic forums in the recipes, recipes, recipes section. Yeah. And I'm going to link to that. And we're going to talk a little bit about this recipe. So I'm going to assume you've made the pie crust either from Kim's recipe or you've used Carl's recipe from last week. Or something else. Yeah, or something else. So what you're going to do is uh, you're going to uh, heat a pan and you're going to melt about 100 grams of butter. And then you, yeah, and you're going to add some truvia. Um, and uh, Kim suggests 70 grams of truvia, um, and which sounds really sweet. But she suggests, you know, if you, yeah. if you don't need it that sweet, cut the sugar by a third. And Brenda, that's how Brenda does it. So I remember Brenda's was re- delicious, yeah. The way I make any dessert with any kind of artificial sweetener is I start with at least half of what the recipe calls for. And if that's fine, I leave it and, yeah. you know, add Good a little call. bit more until it's until it's as sweet as you want. Yeah. yeah. You, you're just trying to make it taste not wrong, you know. So right. it's, it's, it's a sweet, so you want it to taste moderately sweet so people think, oh, well, this is a pecan pie. But the ma- majority right. of the flavor is going to be the butter and the pecans. So mm. uh, so you've got melted butter in a pan and you've added the trivia. And when it starts to bubble, you throw in the pecans and you stir it continually. And uh, Brenda also suggests for maple, add about a teaspoon of maple extract and about one-eighth of a cup of zero-calorie maple syrup. Nice. Uh, and so she just uh, pours the filling into the base and lets it set in the fridge. Uh, so this is not cooked. Um, it, you start off with a cooked pie crust. Um, and Brenda's at, uh, actually has an option. She she also melts uh, two squares of dark chocolate and drizzles those over the top of oh, the pie crust uh, nice. before she lets it set. So it was delicious. It was really good. But it's just really it's just pecans and butter <laughs> and a bit of sweetener. Yeah, sweetener so it's nothing yeah. nothing fancy, but it it is delicious. A little salt. Yeah, yeah that that's yeah. just the perfect recipe right there. I, yeah. I remember. ODing on that stuff. But, <laughs> you know, interestingly, though, we, you know, even though we ate a lot of rich food in Breckenridge last year, yeah. we didn't, like, eat a lot of it. Yeah. You know? No, that's true. It I had, like, sp- small morsels and that I was done. Yeah. And, and it's uh, good. And yeah. you move on. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. My, and the interesting thing about Breckenridge, we're going to do it again this year. So the interesting thing is that we are going to have uh, another party house like we did last year yep. at Low Carb uh, Breckenridge. And mm-hmm. uh, we've got like 20 or 30 people 
yeah. I, I'm going to smuggle in some beer from Australia. I think Louise <laughs> is probably going to smuggle some zero carb beer in as well. Yeah, right. And uh, we're going to be like cooking for the entire weekend. And yeah. this is where you go to taste Brenda's pecan pie. <laughs> so, That's right. So if you're yeah. around, look yeah. us up. Absolutely. Yep. So uh, so we're doing, we're doing it again this year. Well, that's a show, man. That is a show. <laughs> of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something that you don't agree with, or some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2KetoDudes, on Instagram at 2KetoDudes, and make sure to use the hashtag... Two Keto Dudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with witty keto sayings on them, head over to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting that swag for free, join the Two Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our podcasts and our forums, think about making a pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Or just hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com or just go to donate.2keto.com. You can also see all of our podcasts and other videos we've made on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on iTunes. That's how new people get to know about what we do. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Well, keep calm and keto on, Richard. Yeah, keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right, and we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes. Dudes.